0: Just before we start, we all know that there's a problem in academia with people not getting paid for the work they're doing, particularly younger scholars. We at the project want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So we need your help to do that. If you can afford to donate £1 a month to support this project and keep it free forever please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash project RS and sign up there. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that too through our PayPal button on the homepage. But together we can help to change the culture of exploitation in academia. That's patreon.com backslash project RS. Now here's the episode.
1: Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Thomas J. Coleman III, and I'm joined here with... Uh, Chris
2: Cotter. Regular listeners will probably notice that this is not David. Why are you not David, Tommy?
1: Because I don't have an accent. (laughs) I I, I don't know if he sounds like this, but it was a try.
2: It's a wonderful attempt, a wonderful (laughs) attempt. We have just uh, left um, after the final session of the Understanding Unbelief Conference here... unbelievable in Rome. And we'll fill you in a bit more about that at the end of the podcast. Uh, right now, we're going to pass over to Sidney Castillo. He's been speaking with Paolo Corrente on philology and the comparative study of myths. Take it away, Sidney.
3: Paolo Corrente is professor at Universidad Pacífico, academic department of humanities, and also researcher for this university. She is a doctor in religious sciences and master's in anthropology, both from Universidad Complutense de Madrid, Spain, and bachelor's degree in classic philology from Universidad di Salerno, Italy. Professor Corrente conducts research on several subjects regarding mythology, religion, and literature, especially creation myths and the imaginary beyond, under comparative studies of the ancient Mediterranean world and collaborates with renowned scholars of ancient religions and Assyriology. Welcome, Professor Corrente, to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. For starters, we know that your formation is in philology, so I think that that's um, an obvious question. How philology can contribute to the study of religion?
4: Well, the obvious answer is that we text. So, we, you know that we have different kind of religion in the world. Some of the major religion have text. Mm-hmm. So in not all religion world uses text, but with the religion that have text, philology help us mm-hmm. with interpretation of this text and this gives us a lot um a big help in the interpretation and styling of religion mm-hmm. because we have like solid information from people who were living in these times and understand things that they were writing about.
3: Mm-hmm. So it's
4: a, for me, it's a big help in mm-hmm. interpretation.
3: Mm. Exactly. Now, in regard to this approach, what are the methodological challenges when doing research in comparative mythology with a philological approach?
4: Well, I like the word challenge because, um, you know, comparison can be complex because mm-hmm. you need to know several languages, mm-hmm. several different cultures and traditions you have to know a lot of things Mm -hmm. and it's very unusual that one scholar can know all these things. So you need to collaborate and collaboration for me, it's a big things. Mm -hmm. So you have to collaborate with different specialists in different fields of study, Mm -hmm. which is what I do and what I did for my dissertation.
2: Mm
4: -hmm. Um, So, As for the philology, I I, I will tell you about my case. I study comparative mythology and religion from Mm -hmm. ancient Greece and Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. I know Latin and Greek, so I can translate texts from in Latin and Greek. Mm -hmm. But I I didn't study Akkadian or Sumerian, so I need help Mm -hmm. with the texts. So collaboration. I, I need someone uh, to work with in this case is one of the supervisor for my dissertation mm-hmm. and so we have in constant contact because I need him to guide me through the translation mm-hmm. and I think this is a, a good very good things Now not all people like this mm-hmm. but I do I do too I do like collaborating with other scholars because you you learn a lot of things mm. and you can change your way of thinking about things because mm-hmm. you discover things that you didn't know before. Mm-hmm. So it's a big thing and I like it and I do it constantly.
3: <laughs> and as for the translation of words, for example, uh, I know that that's a big deal when we start religion from a philological approach. How do you manage to try to, to read the sources, for reading? reading from the sources, and translating words in one language to another.
4: Well, um, that's complicated because when you translate a text, Mm -hmm. um, especially again with the case of uh, languages from Mesopotamia, sometimes the translation is very complicated because especially Sumerian is a complicated language. Mm -hmm. So, scholars disagree. On the translation of things, for example, so this is a, a big problem because you don't know sometimes which is the correct translation of a text. So this change your interpretation, mm. of course, because so this is there is this big problem that I have, for example, with Mesopotamian myths, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the Sumerian version of this myth because Sumerian is a very complicated language mm-hmm. and. Translating it is very, very complicated. With Latin and Greek, we don't have the same problem because we have. I mean, classical philology has a, um, a very ancient tradition. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of texts, and our knowledge of Latin and Greek grammar is very, very solid. Mm-hmm. So it's very strange if you find the text that you don't know exactly how to translate. But the case with Mesopotamian sources is different. And this is, I mean, again, it's a challenge, no? Because mm-hmm. you have to... you so In this case, you you use a lot of imagination based, in, based on what you know about this culture and this myth that you're studying to help mm-hmm. for a correct translation and the comparison, very important, because sometimes you have the same or a similar myth in other tradition, and so you know exactly how to translate it in this other culture, and so maybe this can help you in choosing the correct word or mm. verb oh. that you need in that text. Mm-hmm. It's it's not always like the, sh- the, the the certain translation, but it's a way of solving the problem. Of course, you can you can use your what you know of other situation, similar situation, and applying it to this particular myth that you don't know how to translate. Mm. I have some of them in my dissertation, very famous myth that this, whose translation is not certain, Mm. so you have to use your imagination, Mm. I like it.
3: (laughs) So, regarding to that point, uh, your doctoral thesis revolves around the concept of dying God, right? and the presence of gods with this feature in Mediterranean and Middle Eastern civilizations. Could you share with us some of your major findings?
4: Well, I think the most important is that the dying god does exist. Because, as you know, uh, this category is very controversial. So, now the, the position is that is if it was a wrong mm-hmm. uh, idea that the dying God does not exist. There was a m- misunderstanding mm. and things like this. But uh, studying especially some texts, again from Mesopotamia and from Near Eastern tradition and and, and um, texts from Greece too about Dionysus. So studying this, Texts and these myths and this tradition, I, I found out that uh, the dying god exists actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very curious that uh, these three gods from Mesopotamia, Ugarit, and Greece, mm-hmm. or say from Mesopotamia, from Near East and from Greece, which are the like the, the the most certain example of a god who dies and comes back are ignored, mm-hmm. usually. So they are the, the gods who are usually not studied mm-hmm. and not put into the category. Mm-hmm. And they are the only one with whom we have certain proofs that there is uh, the death of the god involved. Mm-hmm. So I would say that this is the major finding, <laughs> the existence <laughs> of the, <laughs> this figure. Hmm.
3: Yeah. But this way of classification, of classificating as the gods, certain gods by this particular feature, where does it come from?
4: Um, well, uh, the category of dying gods was in... well, it existed before, but it's famous thanks to Fraser mm-hmm. and his big... Um, the Golden Ball, which is a beautiful uh, well, there are several books about magic and and religion. And so he introduced this category. Um, and he was studying especially three gods and, and and some others. And he was trying to find this kind of divine figure in other cultures. Mm-hmm. So it was there was a lot of criticism again, this category. Mm. And some of this criticism is is real. There are some problems with what he was saying about the dying God. But in my opinion, um, what he said in general was correct. Mm. Now, um, what I'm doing is, I, I think it's useless to just to, keep critici- criticizing him, mm-hmm. you know, which is what people do usually. I think there is no point in doing that this. So I was trying it was very fascinating for me these these this books and these categories. So I started to investigate about it and I found I I found out that it the first thing to do is to um, reorganize mm-hmm. the category which is not totally wrong. We just need to do a difference between the different deities who are involved into the process. Mm-hmm. And so again, Fraser talk, uh, talked about the, the gods that I studied, yeah. Baal, Dionysus, but he didn't treat Inanna, which is the Mesopotamian uh, goddess, because he in part he talked about these myths, but mm-hmm. he couldn't have the text that we have now. So I think Inanna is uh, the most important of these gods, and mm. so my dissertation focuses basically on her and Baal. Uh, so studying, I mean, I focused on them because no one pays attention to the text about them, mm. which I think are highly inter- interesting because they clearly talked about death and resurrection or coming back from death of these gods. So there is no way of denying the death of resurrection of gods if you read the Ugaritic text about Baal or the Sumerian and Akkadian texts about Inanna. And with Dionysus it's the same, although mm-hmm. the case with Dionysus is more complex. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the category is working. We have just, we, we need to reorganize it in the That's what I was trying to do with my dissertation. Mm. So I think we have to make a difference between the different the the way these gods die, because sometimes they don't die; they just disappear or they sleep. No, and instead of denying the entire category, Mm -hmm. I think it's it more more clever just to reorganize it.
3: Okay. Mm -hmm. In regard to the last thing you said. uh, you wrote in your thesis as well about the multiple modalities that the dying God goes through in the respective mythos to be considered as such. There's the physical death, the absence, fettering, sleep, catavasis, or artillation. How these different processes were understood by their own civilizations?
4: I think that in general, the perception was the same. I understand that the death, the absence, the sleep, etc. was the way they had to point at the not activity of the gods. So it's easy when someone is absent can't do his work, for example. Mm-hmm. So when someone, when we are sleeping, we don't work. We don't do what we normally do, do during the day. Mm-hmm. So it was the, day, the same for me with the gods. When the gods were absent, they just couldn't do what they had to mm-hmm. for the world, for the nature, for men. They were they, they were just you you couldn't uh, um, ask for what you wanted because the god in that moment was not working. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think that the meaning of all these things uh, is the same: the inactivity of the gods. Mm there was just a different way of expressing it. In nativity, you you can express it in different ways because a myth is basically a story. So you have an author who is writing about this story and we have to consider the fantasy, the imagination of this author Mm. who could invent things or change the things that he knew from from other stories that he was... Hearing, and mm-hmm. so he would introduce some changes. So instead of the, I don't know, uh, absence, he would talk of the journey to the underworld, mm-hmm. just to make a, a different, uh, to give a different uh, accent to his way of telling the story. I think the the death, the real death, is a different is about inactivity of the gods but from what I I discovered uh, during my investigation I think that the background is different mm. so I put the death of the gods and the resurrection in a specific context and this is the new part of the, the all this issue you know, of this ancient question of the dying gods mm-hmm. for example um, given that in general yeah, um, these different way of dying um, are the same. Express the same things. We can we can understand better uh, with the with words we find in the ancient wo- in the ancient texts. For example, the um, the common metaphor for death is mm-hmm. sleep.
3: Mm-hmm. Of course, now
4: we know it is. Uh, it's something that we can observe, not someone who is sleeping. We can think that he's dead because it mm-hmm. doesn't do anything. it hmm? doesn't move, it doesn't talk, it doesn't walk. So we can think he's dying or mm-hmm. he's dead. So in the, in the text, uh, in general, in many of the texts about um, the gods I have studied, uh, we find the first metaphor for death, which is the sleep. And so we find that for the resurrection, they use the same word uh, that indicates standing. Mm-hmm. For example, in Greek, the the word which indicates a resurrection is the the verb anistemi, mm-hmm. which basically means standing. When you sleep in your bed, and then you stand from the bed. That is the meaning of the verb, and then it was used used for the resurrection. Mm. So, in about Jesus, for example, in the Greek text about the resurrection of Jesus, we find these verbs mm. that then was translated into Latin, uh, which is from where we we, we take our resurrection, the world, mm-hmm. and it's curious that in the text. In the Sumerian text, which is the most ancient that we have, we find the same word to indicate the resurrection of Inanna, the goddess. Mm-hmm. To, to, to say that she lives again, they use the verb, the Sumerian verb, to say to stand. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting this uh, similarity between in, even in the, the use in the language in the mm-hmm. words.
3: Great. Are there, are, is, a, is this a, like a common feature to understand a, a same exercise, a same action, but with different words and how they are after perceived by other civilizations? Like the case you just mentioned with resurrection.
4: Well, it's, um, I don't know if it's uh, that all the civilization would understand and would use the same word because I'm, I'm talking of cultures who are related between them mm-hmm. so they have uh, relations uh, several cultural relations between them so I wouldn't be surprised to find the same language the, the same words in Greek or in Sumerian or in uh, Ugaritic or in Akkadian because we are talking of, the, of a similar cultural context and we know that um Maybe even in this case, it's not proved yet, but uh, it's possible. But we know that in other things, Greece received Mm -hmm. uh, myths, stories from Near East. Mm -hmm. So maybe this would be one of these cases. So the fact that we have the same words can be a normal reaction. Because again, as I was um, saying before, the most common metaphor for death is the sleep. So maybe you can find this in, in, all over the world. I mm-hmm. don't know because I didn't see all the traditional of the world. <laughs> but, but maybe we will find the same things because it's a normal thing. Mm-hmm. The first thing when you think about, uh, when you're talking about death is the sleep. So maybe we find the same things all over the world. I don't know. But in the in the case of the culture I'm studying, can be either a common reaction. Death is sleep, so when I want to uh, to point at the resurrection, Mm -hmm. I I use the verb uh, which means standing Mm -hmm. from the bed, because it's the normal thing. And or the other option is that there was an influence from Near East Mm -hmm. in Greece, which is possible. I don't know, I, I I started to do this kind of investigation or you know, if there is a direct influence from near Eastern Greece or there are two independent things mm-hmm. that just develop in the same way because they respond to the same thing. Yeah. they are just I mean they are the all the two only possibility, but I can't say now if it's um, if it's i mean if this idea was born in one culture and then it goes to other cultures, Mm -hmm. or just it was a natural development inside, within the different cultures. It can be both things. Of course. Mm.
3: Now, given all you have shared with us so far, what would you recommend for achieving proper classifications in the study of comparative myths and religion?
4: That's complex, <laughs> it's a <laughs> complicating one. Um, well, f- first of all, which is what we were commenting at the beginning. To do a proper classification, we should know properly myth and religion, and of different cultures, and we 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 should know how to do classification properly. Mm. And this is a, a, a complicated because there is, you know, there is not a certain way to do it. Mm. And so, And there are a lot of prejudices in the studying of myth and religion, and many people just don't like comparison.
3: Mm.
4: So it's complicated, but I think we have just to have a good knowledge of cultures, cultures. the the different cultures we are studying, Mm -hmm. which is a big thing because we have to know, you have to know a lot of things. You have to know the language and uh, society and art and literature and philosophy. It's a lot of things, but you can do it. And then, and so to do the comparison, you have to know at least two cultures. So it's a lot of pre previous studies to reach Mm -hmm. such a, a level of knowledge. And then, you have to I think you have to have your mind like open to the possibility of doing this classification. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes especially in certain fields of studying, scholars don't like theories or classification. Mm-hmm. And the case with Dying Gods was is a very good example because they just mm-hmm. deny it just denied and say, No, it's not uh, it's not good doing generalization or categories. Mm. Why not? I mean if we study something, we study something, we want to understand what we we, we, we are studying mm-hmm. and to do in order to do that we have to to do theories and mm. categories about things. Yeah. But it's not something that all people or scholars like.
3: Yeah. And so, regarding to that, you mentioned Jesus earlier, mm. when you were talking about resurrection, dying gods. You think that this was um, somewhat of a problem when mm. trying to achieve this kind of classification?
4: Yes, I think it was a problem. It is a problem. Because when we think about resurrection, our first thought go, goes to Jesus. Of course, it's normal. But it does not mean that before Jesus, I mean, we have not, like, there is no proof that before Jesus, God couldn't resurrect. Mm-hmm. Why not? The problem is that we are using the resurrection the way we know it in Christianity, and resurrection in Christianity as certain features. Mm-hmm. And we are use what we know about Christian resurrection to culture who are uh, more ancient, we, we can do that. Mm-hmm. We have to understand mm, what this ancient civilization would understand for resurrection mm-hmm. or would express with the resurrection. And we have to see if we can apply the same world to them. But I am not a fan of this um, fashion now of rethinking about words, words are not correct, we have to change the world. No, I think that we we use the word resurrection, we know the word resurrection, right, with the case of Jesus, Jesus, and we can use this word, and we can apply this word to other gods.
3: Mm.
4: And we just explain what this word means for the other gods, and what this other civilization would have understand for resurrection. I don't see the need of changing the world. We are used to it, so it's part of our tradition. Yeah. So we, we can use it, we just put, make the differences between resurrection, in the case of Jesus and resurrection, in the case of our gods. Mm-hmm. And that's it. There is no confusion because we can understand the differences. Mm-hmm. So we just say it. But in the case, I studied the word um, resurrection in different traditions, And again, I see that it's the same word. Mm. So the fact that they they would use the same word means something, right? Otherwise, they would have used another one. So they, I guess that they, in the, at the beginning, they, they say Judaism and Christianity, they would perceive the resurrection of Jesus very, in a way that was very similar, not the same, similar to the resurrection of the other gods. Mm. But then, of course there is i mean jesus is such an important and particular yeah. figure that then that the, everything concerned with it was with him uh, is so special for him that we can't use it for other things yeah. but it does not mean that the resurrection of death or didn't exist before what it did not exist at least in nearest mm-hmm. at least for what we know uh, it was the association of the resurrection of the gods with the resurrection of the human beings. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, the, this aspect was absent from, at least from uh, Mesopotamian sources and Juggalitic sources. Mm-hmm. But not totally, it was not totally absent from Greek tradition, for example. Mm-hmm. So yes, there is a difference, of course. Yeah. But. I think that the important thing is to explain things, not just to deny them. There is no point of doing it this because you just say the, the things in the clearest way, so people understand, and and that's it.
3: Yeah, of course. Well, it has certainly uh, really been really stimulating to hear you about these kind of things and what are the major mere things that we can obtain from philology. There, is there any other thoughts that you, you would like to say?
4: Well, I would say that um, well, of course, studying languages is basic and it's um, because for us it's a big help in interpretation, so I, I would like that, especially in certain culture or situation like Latin America, we it would be easier to study ancient cultures uh, because in Europe it's still possible. Mm-hmm. We don't know for how long because you know they're trying to eliminate Latin and Greek for from school. Mm-hmm. And we know that this is and, and these are years of technology. so people think that Latin and Greek and philosophy easily. And is useless. Mm-hmm. This is a big mistake. So, um, studying and the possibility of studying ancient cultures in general, it would be an important thing. And I, I, I love especially, I mean, I love philology, but I love mythology and I have always studied it. Uh, with a comparative approach. So I think the comparison, I mean, many people are afraid of comparing things mm-hmm. because they think that at the end we want to say this is better. This mm-hmm. is worst. So this culture is better. Uh, and then all the consequences that can come from that. I don't see comparison in, in this optic. I think mm-hmm. it's a great things because we can see how human beings react. To things. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's why I use comparison. I like to see how a Greek man would deal with some things. In this case, the death of God. Mm -hmm. And then I like to see if in China they have similar things, why they have similar things and how to react to these similar things. And then I go to America and I see if there is something like this. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want, I don't judge. You know, this is okay. This is not okay. They are stupid (laughs) or they didn't do, uh, they didn't know what they were doing. No, I just want to, to study and to see because I am interested in human beings. And Mm -hmm. for me, mythology and religion is a way to understand people. Mm -hmm. And so I, I try to see, to study, to read several cultures. because I try to understand men. So we have men all over the world and I want to know how they do things all over the world. Mm -hmm. So for me, comparison is very, very important Mm -hmm. because it helps the understanding of a specific myth, a specific action, everything you are studying. So I would call for... (laughs) The comparison Mm. and the comparative approach to mythology or religion or literature or these big disciplines in in the history of humankind. Mm.
3: Mm. That's a very good idea for wrapping up. Well, Professor Corrente, it has been a pleasure to hear this, that you share your knowledge with us. Thank you. And we hope to see you again Mm -hmm. here in the Religion Studies Project.
4: Okay. Thank you.
2: Yes, that was an excellent interview. Thank you so much, Sydney. And I gather Sydney will be going to the EASR to represent the RSP in a few weeks.
1: And and where is the EASR being held at this it year? It is in Tartu, Estonia. Nice. Did you see Atko Remmel's paper? I, I in, did not. Yeah. I had to. I, I was recording, helping out with uh, the conference, uh, a alternative session. But I am familiar with his work, and yeah. I'm sad I missed it. Okay. Well I mean you'll have heard some of it before,
2: but uh, and also listeners to the podcast will have heard Utko's podcast from last year's EASR. Yeah, um just before we forget, next week we've got an interview that I recorded with Dan Baker's. Um we've called it Spatial Contestations and Conversions. Um Dan's work, mainly in the city of Amsterdam, looks at uh, you know, the, the the conversion of a building from say a church to a mosque or the or from a, a church to a non-religious function and, and, and what, what happens in those spaces and all the different constituencies that might contest them. So the, the local population, the users of that space, the local government, but also the religious hierarchies associated with them. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in that.
1: The Europeans are very uh, big on recycling. <laughs>
2: that, that we are. I can, I can say that, um, regardless of Brexit, because I've got my Irish passport. And um, so what have you um, you know, without uh, spilling the beans too much and without saying anything too controversial, how did you find this conference?
1: Uh, very interesting. I enjoyed it. It was I've been this is my second one NSRN, I think the second one I've been to. And it, sorry,
2: just to clarify again, we said at the beginning it was a, the Understanding Unbelief mm-hmm. Conference, which is a large research program and it was also combined with the Non Religion and Secularity Research Network. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so I, uh, I, it was primarily from my perspective and also as I, uh, talked with, uh, some of the co-directors, kind of a, a fact finding or, uh, rather, a data gathering, uh, endeavor. So, uh, many of the presentations were just reporting on, uh, some of their recently collected data, uh, much of it in some cases still unanalyzed. And it was very refreshing to hear, uh, you know, further, I would say, Fervor, ah, fervor. There was some fervor, indeed. There was, but uh, further validation, I would say, of of, uh, some reoccurring themes in terms of the diversity of what I will say is non-belief and and non-religion things that we've uh, that we've found before. But this has been a much wider look, uh, I I would say, in in more uh, in different cultures Mm -hmm. and. I think finally I, I noticed uh, it was interesting to hear uh, Andrew Copson, I believe of the UK Humanists. Yes. And uh there there seemed to me uh well, he kind of kicked off the conference along with uh two other speakers and there's a little bit of uh reticence uh to use and and toward the term unbelief. And uh that was that was a theme I think popped up in many of the sessions. I w- I was in uh, obviously all terms are kind of problematic but th- this one uh this one seemed to be particularly problematic
2: yeah absolutely yes um, because of sort of yeah it's coming from a very particular um christian uh, viewpoint i suppose the, the the terms origins and it does sort of it carries with it a lot of that sort of lack and absence and the sort of not quite being full aspect To on the, the more positive side there were lots of researchers who were trying to substantiate well you know yes yes there's this simple fact that people don't believe in let's say a deity but what do they believe in what motivates people what values do they have what stories do they tell what myths do they make and i find a lot of that really encouraging and interesting at the same time it buys into one of my current bugbears uh, of sort of conflating religion and non-religion with things that have to be meaningful. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's all, we've got into this sort of like, it's all about meaning and significance. And um, I I do feel that a a lot of what we may gather under the rubric of religion and non-religion is is quite mundane. And we're now investing it all with like, well, let's explore how people make meaning in their Mm -hmm. lives. And that's a valid thing, but I don't think that that is a substitute for... Um, religion or non religion or belief or unbelief because it then ends no. up making it seem like religion is a really significant thing about meaning making and it ignores all the banal stuff that goes it, on as well.
1: That was particularly. Difficult, or I, I should say, refreshing, from coming from kind of psychology, cognitive science of religion. This is uh, this is more or less kind of taken for granted, or or quite literally is the basis by which, uh, as, as you you know saw here, we, we conduct inquiry. So uh, this has also challenged me to to look past that and see what other things are out there besides meaning. <laughs>
2: Excellent. Well, we could witter on forever. Apologies if the sound isn't as fantastic. We're recording this a little bit on the fly, and we're just about to go and see if the Pope will have a meeting with us.
1: Well, he has one scheduled with me, and I'm sure he'll let you come too.
2: Okay, thanks, Tommy. But come back next week for my interview with Dan. And as we
1: always say, thanks for listening.
2: The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated
0: organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk
2: .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.